Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Welcome back to the Anime World Order podcast. This is show number 116 because we uh, were crippled by ennui for the last two months. We didn't uh, fade away or disappear or, you know, cease to do anything. We just uh, did nothing for about two months. Same as usual. A lot of stuff has happened to give you an idea how much time has passed between the last episode and now. The last episode was about the upcoming Anime Souls project. As of today, all the projects have failed Due yep. to uh, the issues that I was sort of implying in my line of questioning, um, as far as things that have started and ended, you know, as far as anime, an entire season came and went. Flowers of Evil began and finished. Attack on Titan came out and became a huge, huge, huge hit and so on and so forth. A brand new issue of Otaku USA is out, written by yours truly, in which I've reviewed uh, One Piece Strong World, which is on the cover, as well as Attack on Titan and a few other exciting things. Plus, there is a uh, best of 2012-2013 anime guide that you can get for free. It's a PDF. It costs you absolutely nothing. And I wrote half of that. Many other things occurred, and we'll probably catch up on that over time. But first things first, who are we? I am Daryl Surratt, and with me in the usual sense... I am Gerald Rathkolb. And I am Clarissa. But that is not all, because we've got a, a special guest this time, because uh, who better than to force us to record things than external forces? That's the way inertia works. You know, objects remain at rest until acted upon by an outside force. Introduce yourself, Mr. Outside Force Being. Hey there, guys. My name's Mitsugi. I'm from the Anime Addicts Anonymous podcast. I don't think this is the first time we've joined you. Maybe the second time? It's the second time. The second time, and you can find us at www.aaapodcast.com. And the thank you for making me feel important with the with the special title. It makes me feel good. It's the it's the absolute truth. But you, believe it or not, you know you lived in the same town as Gerald and Clarissa for all this time, and we didn't do a podcast. Where, where are you actually podcasting from at this moment? At this moment, I'm podcasting from Ibaraki, Japan, which is the prefecture directly north of Tokyo. So it's about 40 minutes north of Tokyo. My dearest wish for you, for you today is that we will have an earthquake during the podcast so you can have just as much excitement as I do on a weekly basis. So there's are earthquakes <laughs> every week. Yeah, I would say we average about one earthquake a week, but they're normally wow. small. Yeah, they're normally small and they're always in the middle of the night and... No matter how sound of a sleeper you are, so there's just something about everything shaking that'll wake you up immediately. So these are earthquakes, like not tremors. I wouldn't. Sh- I, I'm, I'm my only experience. With we the live on the east coast. We don't know anything about tectonic plate activity. Basically, you'll have an earthquake that'll happen in the ocean, or fortunately, we haven't really had one land right under us. But normally, it'll be like a five or a six. Or or four, and then, but where we are, it'll feel like a three. So, and a three, I guess, is sort of like a tremor. I've never been in a tremor in 
the United States. So, but there are these giant a, worms underneath the surface uh, of yeah. the soil, and they get you. But before I we get too worms. much into that, let's actually go over uh, what we're actually doing this episode. We've got um, sort of a review, as it were. We don't really want to call it a review proper because it's a brand new movie that just came out. And uh, since you're the one in Japan, can you pronounce that Japanese name for us? The movie's name is Kaze Tachinu, which in Japanese, the translation is The Wind Rises. So in English, the translation is The Wind Rises. And it is, in fact, the new film by a guy we typically have vowed on this podcast to never talk about, Hayao Miyazaki of Studio Ghibli fame. And the reason we never talk about him is because we figured everybody knows about Hayao Miyazaki. But this is, um, you know, his latest film and it just came out. So, hey, let's uh, let's get some discussion on it. If you um, really want to go back and hear us talk more about Hayao Miyazaki, even though we are not supposed to talk about him because everybody knows about him, we have still done so multiple times, at least 10 as of what's listed on the website. Well, we did review a Castle of Cagliostro. That's right. So. Yeah, look, as if self-discipline is is anything that any of us are actually any good it at. It didn't work. Yeah. We, we just <laughs> said we would do it, and we did not live up to that claim multiple times over. And I know that from going to the website, which is www.animeworldorder.com, where you can get links to all the previous episodes as well as this episode. Our email address is animeworldorder at gmail.com as well. So uh, you can always catch us on Twitter, which is where most of us are spending our lives at Anime World Order. And generally that account exists to say, hey, a new episode's out, which means that we basically didn't post anything for quite some time. But I do want to read one email before we get into this, because it is related to recent happenings that have uh, rocked the Anime World Order world <laughs> to its very core. We just got this email uh, a few hours ago. This is from Michael. He's also currently in Japan. Oh. He writes this. Hey, AWO, long-time listener, yada, yada, yada. Typically, I just pull titles out of your review index, which I forgot to mention. We have a review index of all our previous shows, so you don't need to write us in to say, hey, review this. Check the review index first. He typically pulls titles out of the review index that he doesn't recognize, and I listen to that podcast to see how I just changed the uh, you know voice there. Listen to the podcast to see what's up, and it served me rather well with such titles as Bartender, Redline, Miss Critical Moment, and of course, Crystal Triangle. But by far, the hidden gem, though, has been Barefoot Gen. Being a fan of history and the comic mouse, I was sold instantly on your review and read all 10 translated volumes of Gen via my university's library. You see how I just switched between Soft G and Hard G? I'm going to just keep doing that. Currently, I'm on a study abroad to Nagoya, Japan, and before coming here... I knew that I needed to visit Hiroshima to see it myself. Long story short, I was the only one in the study abroad program who wanted to travel that far from central Japan. But the one day I spent in the city has been the highlight of my seven weeks in Japan thus far. Today, it's a very beautiful city from its parks and memorials to its skyscrapers and shopping arcades. I would recommend that everyone visit it one day. Back to the manga aspect, though. I was extremely happy to see that in the Peace Memorial Museum's gift shop, they sold not just Barefoot Gen, but Keiji Nakazawa's I Saw It, which I promptly bought, having not found it anywhere else. I've included a picture of about one-third of the display. Japanese and English versions are both available. For the kids listening, Japan is exactly like how you imagine it. You walk into a convenience store, 
And of course you hear the psychopaths and attack on Titan themes over the radio. Gundam is everywhere. People sing the Dragon Ball theme at karaoke. Everything is super moe. And Godzilla has attacked no fewer than five times since I've been here. No fooling. Keep up the good work. I'm not sure I would have spent the money to venture all the way to Hiroshima without that review. I suppose at this point I should quickly watch Demon City Shinjuku so that I can really know what's up when I go to Tokyo. Signed, Michael. P.S. I originally read Barefoot Gen over a year and a half ago and was half hoping to maybe meet Nakazawa if and when I got to Japan. So I was sad to find out that he passed away from lung cancer on December 19th, 2012. Rest in peace. So, of course, we've got Mitsugi here to confirm that all those things about Japan are true. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, people true lied. Uh, this is the actual truth. And the reason I mention this is because, uh, of course, that particular review has inspired uh, something else recently, even though it happened many, many years ago. I guess uh, one of our listeners, who I guess, do I use his code name or do I just say one of our listeners? I'll just say one of our listeners because I don't want to say Boneheimer. It's too sexual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he went and he made a flash animation of an excerpt audio from that review. The same review that has inspired a man to go to Japan and visit the bombing site inspired this guy to make something even greater and do something even better, which is to make a, a flash web animation that posted to YouTube, dramatically reinterpreting that audio, which we will uh, embed. We'll put a YouTube link in there on our blog post for this episode. So that you can bask in its majesty itself. If you, pretty if you awesome. give it enough likes and give it enough positive comments, maybe he'll make more of them. I know the one like crazy visual novel dudes who like really hate us have downloaded it as a matter of principle, as they do for every video that we post. Isn't that that just that one guy that just I don't really, know who really it is him? though. I've never spoken to him. I just and, know and he did, likes visual know. novels, and I've never said shit about visual novels. What I have probably said is that I think fucking your sister's kind of weird, and I guess a lot of visual novels are about fucking your sister. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, I, I just I'd never thought that like there would be such that big a deal about that. But yeah, we we seem to have an enemy. How much sister banging goes on in Japan, Mitsugi? We just talked about this on our own podcast, and we we wondered what if there was some kind of statistical study that had been done to determine how much of that actually happened, because it seems like nowadays every anime that's harem or romance somehow seems to slip sleeping with your sister into the show. But of course, it's always your stepsister, so it's it's okay, right? Yeah, right. They're not, not related, related by blood. Except when they are related by blood. That's what the visual novels come in for. I think maybe the stepsister part is the equivalent of the two-year community college <laughs> part in the pornography translations here. I thought that that whole thing came about because so many Japanese kids are like on only, only child. children. Yeah. And men and like boys and girls are so kind of like segregated that the sister is like the closest female to your age that you have any sort of... Uh, regular contact with or something i mean it I, sort of makes sense like you used to see similar things like involving cousins in classical literature and a lot of other stuff just because like a cousin would be somebody who was close enough that you would spend time with them but not so close that it would actually be socially unacceptable to marry them that's why i'm always curious like where do all these childhood friends come from <laughs> what i can say is that from what i've seen of japan people are incredibly shy in public, but at least in the elementary schools where I teach, they haven't really reached that stage yet where they feel weird and shy about themselves. So they don't, the seat doesn't part and separate the, the boys and the girls, and maybe not until high school, but there is sort of that awkwardness. So I do see your point about the sister at your home being the closest female presence, maybe other than 
other than the mother, and that's <laughs> maybe and that a happens a lot story. too, anyway. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a whole other set of issues. Yeah. So I guess that answers what you're doing in Japan. You're doing the typical <laughs> anime fan dream, which is go to Japan to, quote, teach English. It's the easiest thing to do, yeah. How did you actually pull this one off? Because I figured every Japanophile there is is applying for this program because they love anime. Did you have to interview and then deny you knew anime because you knew the second you said anime, they'd throw your application in the trash? Let's hear it. Let me tell you the story. So... You'd actually be quite surprised how easy it is to get a job over here. The program that, that you hear about that's difficult to get is the JET program, and that's just because the application rate's so high. They, they mm -hmm. also tend to pay more, and they're a little bit selective about who they hire, but the government's been phasing the JET program out in favor of other programs which have been rising. What I basically did was I went to gaijinpot.com, which is a website most of most people have heard of, and we're supposed to interview one of the people that works for Gaijinpot in a couple of weeks, so hopefully he can give more information. But you just put your resume on Gaijinpot, splash it around, apply to 10 or 15 jobs. And within about a month, I had probably five interviews, one of which picked me up. And I felt really comfortable talking to the guy because for whatever reason, I just felt like he was easy to talk to. And I mentioned, you know, we do an anime podcast. We love anime. And Honestly, I think that that was what got us the job because it spurred off like an hour long conversation that went way over the interview time where he's talking about how the, all the employees dress up like samurai and go to samurai reenactments and everyone watches <laughs> anime and hmm. everyone goes to Akihabara. Was that true or was that basically military recruiter talk? I'd say that was true. They, they recently had a Minecraft uh, LAN party. <laughs> Which I uh, I didn't participate in because I, I haven't played much Minecraft. Good man. I definitely, so you're, you're, yeah. you're still a human then. Okay. Yes, I, I'm not made out of blocks, although that might be fun. <laughs> when you go over there and you, quote, teach English, what's actually required of you? Because I've been reading some interesting articles as of late as far as uh, what they really want you to do there. Teaching English in Japan, my job title is ALT, which is Assistant Language Teacher, but really there's no one else there teaching the language, so you should really just be the main teacher. But this is probably the easiest job anybody will ever have in their entire life, to the point where the company that I work for, it's actually a different company than the one that I came over with, said that the bottom line is that if it's elementary school, they don't even want you to really necessarily teach the kids English. They just want you to make English fun because the kids aren't tested on English until they get to middle school. Middle school is where your life ends, where you have to you know, study for 10 hours a day. and mm -hmm. It's kind of sad, but in Japan, they don't really discipline kids very much because they consider the, the time before you're 10 to be your golden age. Because <laughs> once you enter middle school, you have to pass tests for high school and everything else. I've heard theories that so much anime is set well, while the people are like 12 to like 14 years old, because in the mind of the Japanese, that was the best time of their lives. I completely agree with that. Yeah. And so a, that, that a, would make sense. It's a lot of pressure because depending on what high school you go to generally shapes which college you go to. And, right. and some people believe that it determines your course in life for the rest of your life. And I think to myself, that's a lot of pressure to put on a 13 year old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a little yeah. young. It seems pretty horrible, but I've heard if you don't go to Tokyo, you don't expect a job in the government, ever. I know that in America, you know, there's a lot of like the Ivy League schools there, but I mean, it seems like you can move 
up if you don't go to an Ivy League school. But in Japan, it seems like virtually impossible. They do have their schools sort of on tiers. I guess we sort of do that, too, in the United States with the Ivy League and then everything else. But they have, you know, the top schools, so schools that are still really good, good schools, schools that are sort of average, and then they have bad schools. I have taught at the prior company I was at, we, I tended to have more people that were maybe had doctorates or worked as scientists. And they went to all kinds of different schools, including universities in Kyoto and places like that. So as far as the Tokyo Utah goes, it might be the, the most prestigious, but I do think you can, you can get a good job without going to Tokyo U. Now, I actually want to hear more about what they actually expect you to do when you quote teach. I know you said it's like the easiest job in the world, but I mean, I've sure. been reading some columns from people, you know, that's a common job that people have when they're over in Japan and people write about their experience. Do you feel like you're sort of a zoo creature? Like, you know, hey, check out the white guy. <laughs> okay. So, all right. All right. Why don't I just run down like a typical day for you? How does that sound? Sounds I see great. you're answering my question with an interesting. Oh, let's let's hear it though. <laughs> okay, so 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 you get to the school at at eight thirty because the first class starts at eight forty, and the whole day, even before you get inside the building, there's kids hanging off the railings in the balconies, going, "Hey, go sensei, Mitsuki sensei," and it's basically unquestioned love from the kids. All they want to do is crawl all over you, and they're fascinated by the fact that that I have a like a longer Western nose. My, the fact that I, the fact that I have blue eyes, I, I, I have kids look directly at me and, and call me Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> Pinocchio sensei. And the teaching is like the generally the schools will tell you what they want taught during a lesson. The, a typical lesson plan that they give me is literally it'll say colors and that's it. You just basically do whatever the heck you want to teach them colors and no one cares what you do during the actual class. If the teacher's even in the room, they're normally doing some kind of grading or cutting out construction paper or using the hour to basically make their lives easier, their free hour that they got because the English teacher's there. I actually do tend to try to teach the kids. You know, I play games and things like that. But I have friends that teach over here that don't even teach. They go out and they play kick the can. And because it's in English, the company deems it being okay because the kids are associating English with having fun. But the job can get monotonous. I've taught the numbers 1 through 20 like 65 times because I have five schools. <laughs> and then there's six periods during the day. I don't always teach during all the periods. So sometimes I only have four periods of teaching. And then in the middle of the day, they have lunch. And then they have sojijikan, the cleaning time. And then they have play time. And I'm supposed to clean the, the floors with them and go out and play. And something that you guys might find interesting is because I, I, I always enjoy it is during lunch and during cleaning time right after, the kids do do that thing where they run on the floor with the rag while they're oh, down right, on all yeah. fours. They do that, and they race sometimes. And a lot of the time, they, they'll play Studio Ghibli music over the PA system while they're eating or cleaning. And that's always... <laughs> listening to Kiki's Delivery Service is... I don't know. It always makes the boring part of the day, which is cleaning, a little bit charming. <laughs> huh. And then you're done by 4.30 and you go home. So as far as like actual English teaching, there's no one that's teaching like formal phonics and grammar, or is that like the primary teachers doing that as well? All right. So I'm an elementary school teacher. Right. And so there's no English. There are no, none of the teachers speak English because they don't teach a foreign language in elementary school. I was specifically instructed never to write English on the chalkboard because they can't read it. 
Generally, I don't teach them grammar, and I'm not supposed to teach them phonics either, although I have been asked to teach the alphabet. Now, this is fascinating that you're a teacher who's been flown out to Japan who's being explicitly told, don't teach the kids. <laughs> you yeah, have to teach the teaching... alphabet, but you can't actually write any English on the board. It's pretty hard. Um, what I started to do, all the classrooms under my board of education, they all have big like 45-inch plasma TVs hanging up on the wall. For the little kids that are learning the alphabet, I'll download a bunch of YouTube videos and play Mother Goose videos for half the class. That's how you get through that class. But you're right. I, I was flown to Japan as a teacher to teach, and yet, in my mind, I don't really teach. <laughs> so, Is yeah, Bandai I, I the people who are in charge of this English <laughs> teaching program? May I, 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 no, it's, I know, it's because I, it just I, I, seems I was, like they're kneecapping you Right from the bat, like if the goal of this program is really to make kids accustomed to English, you can't actually formally teach them anything. It kind of makes me wonder, maybe you're there for some other purpose <laughs> that, you know, they're there to say, hey, look at the wacky gaijin. Harvest your liver at the end of the program, maybe. Yeah, actually, I think that that's part of it because... <laughs> The yeah. liver harvesting or look at the wacky white guy. <laughs> Man, I, I, I really I really like my liver. <laughs> can keep it I in understand there. that you can lose 85% of it and it'll grow back. Really? Maybe. That's amazing. I see no. what they're doing there. They're, they're basically just sort of climat climatizing the children to like hearing English and associating it with just good things, I suppose. Yeah, the, the real purpose is that because the kids don't have to, they're not tested on the English in elementary school, they really want the kids to just associate English with having fun. That yeah. way, when they get to middle school and everything becomes really shitty for them, they, <laughs> yeah, literally, uh, I, yeah. I, I, I toured a middle school once and they, those kids look like, you can just see their souls like siphoning out while they're in class. So that when they get to middle school and they have to be tested all of a sudden, they don't hate English, and so they actually try to learn it. And so that's that's the strategy for the elementary teachers. If you're a middle school teacher or a high school teacher, you do, you do have to teach actual English sometimes, but a lot of the time I'm told that you, you essentially just read things for the homeroom teacher. Now, how long have they been taking this approach to teaching English over there, in your estimation? <sighs> the company that I work for is not a new company, it's been gradually getting bigger and bigger, and it's actually the biggest company that places English people in schools over here now. It, it displaced the JET program recently. But I don't know if I can actually accurately answer your question because I'm not sure, but it's, it seems like it's pretty deeply rooted in their philosophy. They have books and stuff written about it that they gave us. So I would say that for most of the time the company has been around, which is more than 10 years I would say that they've been doing this. Well, I, I wonder what the results of that are, given how famous the Japanese are worldwide for not knowing English well. <laughs> but Well, maybe it's my fault. <laughs> no, I, I don't know if it's your fault. You're playing within the system that they've given you. So they give you, like, you know, your own foreigner housing or what? Like, do you live in a crazy expat apartment complex or housing? Actually, my living situation is fantastic. I got my house with the with the last company I worked for, and I can explain that in a minute. But I actually live in a real house. I don't. I can't tell you how many square feet it is, but it's at least three times as big as the condo I was living in in Florida, and it's two floors. I have four tatami mat rooms, a big kitchen. It's pretty big enough that you could fit like twenty five people inside of it. 
And how many people and live there with you? It's just two of us living here. And the rent's pretty cheap. So that's crazy. So you went from all the space in Florida to a larger space in, you know, cramped Japan. It's so large well, that... it's different in Japan depending on whether you're living, like, in the Tokyo area or, like, a similarly big city or yeah, somewhere else. It is true. It's really could, different. If I had this place in, in, like, the middle of Tokyo, it would be like Derek Jeter owning it. It would be really <laughs> expensive. Yeah. It'd be... It'd be ridiculous. But this place is so big that the room I'm sitting in right now is used only for our podcast. We have it's basically <laughs> it's a podcast room. <laughs> it is. That's what we call it. The podcast room. We have like the foam on the walls and the camera set up for when we do the, our live show and, and everything. So like I have extra rooms that I don't even need, really. <laughs> it's a little bit absurd. So I assume since it's out in the country, they don't yet have, you know, the real toilets. They still have the scary foreigner terrifying ones. I have a Western toilet. And it has full button electronic functionality. I have a okay, so it's the Peepo Chew toilet then. Oh man, those are so great. Yeah, I've got, I've got the air blower, the the butt sprayer, warm the seats, and everything nice. else you want. The restaurant suggester, the <laughs> you know re- reservation maker, things like that. Yeah, the animal noise button, yeah. <laughs> telephone. Yeah. Well, actually, some of the ones in like the public restrooms do have buttons. Flush sound. Yeah, yeah. So it makes noise to cover up so nobody can hear you peeing. It's really not that rural. We're actually considered a suburb of Tokyo, and I can be inside Akihabara in forty-five minutes. So how often do you hit that then? And how like weird is it? You know, now that you can't have people performing in the streets. I, (laughs) I was in Akihabara two days ago meeting one of our podcast listeners who wanted to meet us. That doesn't sound scary at all, but keep going. They were a little skittish. You know, I, I wanted to take them to the freaky stuff, but they... How did you they, find the freaky stuff without having a guide? It's, no, it's just right there, like in your face. You're walking on the... Listen, this is podcast explicit, right? <laughs> this oh, is yeah. the explicit it's, podcast. Yeah. So basically, you'll be walking on the street and you'll just see like young girl vagina molds and everything. Just like storefront in your face. I've you heard can't. about this store. I believe, uh, it, like it's just one store, really. You know, no, I'm sure it's a plenty. There's a bunch of them, and they're always multi-story. Like there'll be five or six stories, and it gets freakier as you go up. So you have like normal stuff on the first floor, <laughs> like lube and and gentle stuff on their first, like condoms and stuff on the first floor. Then you'll go up, and you'll start getting into like the sex toys, and then you get to like the blow-up dolls, and then you get to like the vagina molds, and then you get to the robots. On the, the top, top floor. floor. Is the road? Oh, the robots, huh? I've been forbidden to go to the top floor of some porn shops because, and I think it's because I'm a foreigner. Well, yeah, they're, they're very I, upfront I, about the racism there. It's not like here. They're straight up no American. Especially against other uh, Asians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> two days ago, I, I saw Attack on Titan is everywhere here. It's just crazy. I've heard the theme song for Attack on Titan in, uh, in supermarkets. When I was in Akiba two days ago, I saw a guy dressed in full cosplay with, like, the sword belt and everything. There's a half a million dollar Attack on Titan Ferrari driving around somewhere that I haven't seen. I did see that video of of it because you can get a lot of mileage out of that colossal Titan costume. Yeah. And people on both sides (laughs) of the U.S. and Japan have found that out to great effect. Akihabara is a freaky place, and it gets real freaky. If you're willing to just... You go inside... Any anime store, like a manga shop, and you go downstairs and you will see some really gross porno. Like, not normal stuff. Like, here, here's a little, here's a... Oh, so you actually have samples because you purchased some. 
<laughs> Perfect. Here's a, I picked up a, fl- we have like this wall of flyers behind us that we use as like a backdrop. I was just picking some stuff up while I was there to, to fill out the wall a little more. And I picked up a flyer for a porno called, I joke you, I kid you not, it's called Love and Piss. Oh. Yeah, not peace. Love and piss. Nope. <laughs> Sounds Love about right. Dabu and Pisu with a bunch of little girls. <laughs> you get some weird stuff. I'm sure that's just scratching the surface. But since you are a foreigner, you're living in Japan, you're close to that area. Do you have any dark, terrifying Rapongi stories? Because that's where all the crazy foreigners go. That's what I understand. The Nigerians I, um... run that joint, right? I don't personally have any Rapongi stories, but I can tell you a story about some gaijin parties that happen over here. Oh. So we'll, so we'll just turn this episode into straight hentai. <laughs> and, <laughs> we have uh, a couple of those episodes already. So they have these things called gaijin parties, and there's this guy that lives here that organizes them in Tokyo. And it's basically like if you're a foreign dude, you pay like a cover charge of 10 bucks to get in. If you're a woman, it's free. If you're a Japanese man, it supposedly costs like $50. And the purpose, it's just because the, the Japanese guys see all these hot, see all these hot Japanese girls going in and they want to like, see what's up. But the purpose of the, of the party is specifically for Japanese women to hook up with and have sex with American men or Western men. And there must be the, some dire looking men at these parties, I assume. The guy so. that organizes the parties is supposedly beyond overweight. <laughs> and he touts all the time that, you know, you, you can get all these sweet women in Japan, even if you're like really, 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 really overweight. I understand he and did a Kickstarter for a book and wrote some sweet fanfic. Oh, wait, different guy. <laughs> <laughs> did or he not. actually use the Kickstarter money to make his book? Um, probably will. So maybe that's a Rapongi story for you. I don't go to Rapongi often, but stuff like that does happen. And oh, and naked karaoke parties happen. Oh, that's pretty normal, I suppose. I guess so. <laughs> so it doesn't sound like you're living a very lost-in-translation-like existence. You're not just uh, sitting motionless in the hotel. You're just going out and finding stuff. Now, how good was your Japanese before you decided to make this move to actually survive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I-, I studied Japanese in college, but it was really non-intensive. And then when I got Did out of you college... show up in costume to your classes, as I understand the people who do that for Japanese 101 are oh, apt God. to do. Yes, I did dress up as Kamino once, and... Uh, and you didn't drop out after the first semester, which is the typical assumption that the people who show up in costume aren't going to stick around. Well, my friend did Peach Girl, and he was a guy, so it was like I wasn't even dressed up at all. But doesn't Kamino, like, have no shirt? He has bandages. <laughs> touche touche how well did you do in this course i always did pretty well it was so non-intensive it was really easy my japanese was okay coming over here i had a tutor when i got out of school and, and we were able to talk she was gentle with her with her language usage but obviously being over here the japanese has improved a lot and it's not too hard to have a conversation now with people and it, but in Japan, if, even if you just say your name, everyone's, everybody says, Oh, so Jozu, so good. And they clap. <laughs> I said my name. Yeah. I said good afternoon in Japan. They don't, they don't expect you to know anything. No, they don't. So what all. else are you into over there before we get into, you know, obviously you, you went to the movies, you saw this, uh, film, but what other stuff are you, are you taking in while you're over there? Butler um, cafes, I hope. Butler lots, cafes. Lots I have done maid cafes. They're really disappointing. I don't, I don't want to crush anybody's dreams, but the maid cafes are, they're really cute, 
but the girls don't sit in your lap or do anything weird. Or <laughs> that would ruin their moe purity. It's yeah, the maybe it the, would. Uh, it's the home of the what thirty or forty dollar Coca Cola. Yeah, so, the uh, Back to the, the Future Two Coca Cola. They'll bring out like a parfait for you, and then the parfait is like fourteen dollars, and it's not particularly big. And but it's not enough to bring you just a parfait, right? They'll get down, you know, real close to it, and go. Now it's magic time. Papa, magic. <laughs> and and they do their little moe skit and that that's why people go, but I saw That's why you're paying $14 for the parfait. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Do they then proceed to eat 2 thirds of the parfait, much like how when you order the bottle of wine at the host club, the hosts drink most of it? Actually, because we're foreign, I think they feel awkward, so they're usually more likely to try to get the hell away from you as quickly as possible. <laughs> I feel really bad for these girls because they have to they have to stand out on the street and like in their costumes. And Akiba, you can't walk fifty meters without running into a maid cafe girl on the street handing out flyers, and they have to be in like their outfit outside, and everyone looks at them like they're weird or tries to take their picture when they're not supposed to, and. They don't seem very moe to me when they're sitting out, like, whoring themselves, giving out flyers, but I guess mm. that's just me. I don't really like moe too much. There are other themed cafes, though. I mean, you could get some yes. Gundam-themed cafes and such. You know, have you have you done any of this stuff? Have you done anything totally unrelated to anime over there? Actually, two days ago, I went to the Gundam cafe with, with the people that we met. Oh, and my. I got it. I can't remember the, the name of the little ball that they use, the little robot guy. Maharo. Hado, yeah. uh, so I got a Hado latte. It was 350 yen. It was so-so. The best thing about the Gundam Cafe is the bathroom because they have like a button on the wall. Like you hit the flush button and like the whole bathroom darkens and you see like the V on the Gundam's helmet light up like it's, it's, <laughs> inside of it like turns into like a Gundam and starts like pl- playing like engine noises. The, the Gundam Cafe is pretty cool. Of course, then they have cat cafes. I actually subscribe to one of those Twitter accounts that just post cat pictures just, just go there and hang out with a terrorist cell for money <laughs> you go and, and you pay like 20 bucks for an hour to sit there and pet a cat and drink coffee because people <laughs> in japan can't have pets a lot but by far the best cafe and when when my brother comes over here in the middle of august he's gonna want to go so i'm gonna end up having to go to this place but is the newly opened cuddle cafe yeah, we saw the pictures of that, and it looks like a nightmare. I haven't been there yet, so I don't I don't really know. It seems but... like a lot of money to do nothing. Yeah, ah, but for Japanese men, I think it's it's incredible. Well, it's the Moe so, ideal once again. So you, you've you never even, even been in a bedroom with a girl, let alone lie down on a, on a bed with her, and yet you get to lie there next to her for $20 minutes. $10, $10 for 10 minutes. It's way higher like that. than that, man. Okay, I can look this up really quick. <laughs> Sounds like um, the easiest job in the world for the lady. Well, there's got to be, you know, dudes looking at you in closed circuit, ready to burst in and beat you senseless if you try to make a move. So there's always that. So. The Akaza the, uh, are there. They were actually hiring people, and it's $30 for 20 minutes. That's more about wow. in keeping with what I had heard. Or if you're really sleepy, like really sleepy. You can pay five hundred dollars for ten hours. Oh God! <laughs> this is this is actually on this is actually on, on the on the quote unquote menu. They were hiring girls when it first opened, and they were paying them forty five U S dollars an hour. And they can't, and the people can't even touch them. They, you just lie there. <sighs> so oh, it sounds like a pretty sweet gig, but <laughs> I'm not See, a girl, so. 
See, I'd I'd read about this one cafe that I would have wanted to go to. It was this like military cafe where they hired like some actual U.S. Marines from like the bases and stuff, and their t- entire job is to yell at you while you eat. Really? And they yell at you and say, "Okay, now do like twenty push-ups, and you have to do twenty push-ups or something." That sounds it, awful. <laughs> apparently, there's like two levels to it too. Like they've got the like extreme level, and if you get through your meal, I guess without throwing up or something, then you, I don't know, get a badge or something. Oh that, my gosh, that's funny. That sounds that sounds awesome to me. There is a cafe sort of like that called it's called Alcatraz Cafe. It's in, uh, does it simulate being in jail? It does. There's uh, awesome. it's in it's in uh, Shibuya. You go up and there's like, I guess this is what Japan thinks Alcatraz is. So there's like really sexy dancing girls dressed up as nurses. So we're all good there, right? But yeah. you eat dinner inside of a like a like a darkly lit with like the flickering lights, you know, Silent Hill style prison cell. You're eating dinner in this prison cell while like people that are dressed as inmates, right? Like try to scare the living shit out of you. Like they'll they'll run up behind you and shake the bars and scream and then run away. Well, Maybe, I've been to Alcatraz and I can say it's exactly like that. Oh, yeah. really? He broke Down out to- of the rock. <laughs> <laughs> Found out that uh, Candyman was the Rocket Man. Nurses and all. Yep. So I, I understand, you know, that there are people listening to this right now who've been to Japan and are like, yeah, way to live up the stereotype of being, you know, the the gaijin in Japan. Way to live up all the weird Japan. Yeah. Mimetics. Is there anything that we can offer that that that, that they've never heard of before that you've done or you've seen or you want to dispel like some sort of common myth? Does anything come to mind? The common myth about Japan, the honest truth, is that Japan is. Not nearly as fun as people think it is. I don't know. Maybe that's not what you're looking for, but no, that is what we're looking for. We want the, okay, the Pipochu reality. All right. So the reality of it is that Japan is a quiet, peaceful country where people don't make any loud noises outside, and everyone's polite and way too concerned about not inconveniencing others. Where they obsess about the recycling, and I mean, I have to recycle a different different type of trash every day of the week. It's crazy. I mean, yes, you do see anime in, in every single supermarket and every single convenience store and people stand there and read it. And you do hear anime music on the store radios and there are billboards for it and stuff like that sometimes. But people don't nearly watch as much anime as everybody thinks. And especially if they're older people, there's actually even also a negative stigma about anime in Japan. The reason why that is is because Japan as a country doesn't have very much crime before we started, we were talking about all the crazy crimes that happened in Florida and how it's just like, oh, someone got axe murdered? Oh, okay. Whatever. That's not too bad. <laughs> but in Japan, if anything like that happens, every single person in the country knows about it and they're all horrified. Japan has like 10 gun murders a year and you can look that up and that's not too far off. Unfortunately, there were two crimes committed. There was the Miyazaki crime where the guy kidnapped some girls and murdered them. Okay, but now you're talking about, you know, decades and decades ago. Yeah, yeah but... He recently uh, died, uh, like, two, like three, four years ago, and I think. But the reason why I'm bringing that up is because for the people that are ages 40 and older, anime sometimes has a negative stigma because, you know, they search that guy's home and it's full of anime So when you say 40 stuff. and over, you're talking 80% of the country. Yes, because, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point, because <laughs> Japan is very old. And then, then there was the guy that drove on the sidewalk in Akiba and mowed down like 30 people and then yeah, got out the of his Kato. car and stabbed was, a bunch right. of guys. And that, that was about four years ago at this point, right? Yeah, that was more recent. And that was, of course, another blow for anime's reputation. 
But the younger people, you know, I'll be in my classrooms in the in the elementary schools, and I'll say, "Who loves Shingeki no Kyojin?" And everyone's like, "Yeah." So all I love the it. elementary school kids love Attack on Titan. That's what you're telling me. It it is it's a true. shonen thing. I mean, it's easy to forget that it's a shonen work, given what goes down yeah, not, in it. Not seinen, yeah, shonen. And I've got kids that are obsessed with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, and every everybody's obsessed with One Piece. It's by far the biggest. Mm-hmm. Elementary yeah. schoolers and, obsessed with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Now that is seinen now. Yeah, yeah. I, I have had thoughts like, why? Like, where are your parents? <laughs> why are you watching JoJo? And my last name starts with with J O, so I am now JoJo to that kid. <laughs> I have I you have just the same start last, punching him repeatedly. I, I have the same last name as one of the JoJo's first names, and I'll be like Hamonoba Driver, and he's the kid just flips out. So <laughs> the younger younger people love anime here, but the older people don't love it so much. I don't know if this is even like an issue anymore, but is the Hikikomori thing an issue there, or is that even associated with kind of like elementary schoolers? I don't know. Like I figured probably once that middle school phase hits and they actually start having to. I'm talking about like just as a news item or as a as an issue in Japan. If it is an issue, it's a small one, and I haven't heard anything about any any Hikikomori. It's probably hard to hear about them since they lock themselves in their house, but I I guess it'll do that. But it does bring up another point, and before we get into this this review of sorts, there's way more stuff that comes out over there that never sees the light of day over here. Obviously, you're Uh real close to Akihabara. Are there any titles, like manga-wise or something, that you're checking out that nobody here has ever heard of because it's never been brought out in english that's almost like a hard question for me at this point because is because are I'm you checking here. out a lot of stuff well i i do watch a lot of anime and i see a lot of a lot of things some of them but i'm not really sure what has been picked up and what's currently available in english what's like a something that you read where it's like wow this would never come out here but you're like a fan of it uh i'm not a fan of it but really big a really big title right now is idol master okay we know about that monstrosity yeah, I, I don't <laughs> Well, Idol Master is like been incredibly merchandised. It's all and over is the that place. is that popular? Like, do do you see certain types of people that's popular with, or is that just like popular all over with boys, girls, young and old? My my impression of that show is that it's mostly guys. <laughs> that I would think it. so. Yeah, I I won't say that no girls watch it, but um, mostly guys. For Japan, one of the craziest things that you'll see. Are the characters that exist the mascots make it sort of yeah that'll never make it over there's a character right now that's huge called Namiko. it just means like mushroom and it's i don't know if you guys have seen Namiko, but he's everywhere every third elementary school kid has a has a Namiko something like at their desk nidakuma is still big that hasn't made it over yet the alpacas so many alpacas as far as anime goes, I think that most of the stuff that people watch, at least subtitled in America, that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff is here. But we do get a lot of movies that may never make it in America. Like there's a Conan movie, a Detective Conan movie every month. It seems like <laughs> hmm. there's another uh, there's Lupin a, versus Conan this year. That's right. Lupin versus Conan. Mewtwo has an evolution now and they're going to have a new Pokemon movie coming up. But as far as the ones that may never make it to America, Idol Master's big, and the biggest shows over here are the Shonen shows. Yeah, so that's what I've heard everybody's watching Hunter Hunter, One Piece, Toriko, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Kuroko no Basuke never makes it to America. It's a sports thing, and that's ne- probably never going to come out here like officially. I think it's streaming. 
Kuroko no Basuke is really big here, and it's it's so big that there were all the bomb threats for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they keep canceling the events. Those those stories make it over here. We hear about it, but yeah, no one mm-hmm. actually like cares about Kuroko's basketball or whatever it is. Yeah, so Kuroko no Basuke is really big. So are you reading like the Japanese shonen or whatever manga anthologies over there? Like, can you actually follow that stuff? Since sounds like you're going to the movie theater and watching films. Actually, recently I picked up a Conan movie manga. So they've made the one of the movies into a manga just to practice Japanese and to because uh, reading is a whole different issue when you're in Japan because reading is much harder than than speaking. So I've been trying to translate that for the heck of it, and it's I found that it's not too it's not too bad. And, but of course, every manga has its own intended audience, and so they tend to have different levels of difficulty. Have you been going to any of like the Fancy Pants Super Fanboy premiere type things or the screenings that happen over there? Since it sounds like you're not too far away from Akihabara, that maybe you uh, you might have been at some of this stuff, or no? I'm not sure what you mean by Super Fancy Pants, but I was at. Well, I just figured premiere. that when things come out or get released, chosen like ten theaters in the country, like twice. And that's it. Mm. I haven't done any of any of anything that exclusive, but I was at the opening screening of the Dragon Ball Z movie that came out. The like, new one with the ago. in the IMAX. Did you see it there? Or? I didn't see it in IMAX. It's just how is that expensive. movie? It's terrible. <laughs> really? Are you like a fan of Dragon Ball in general? And you're saying it's I terrible? am. I am a fan. It hurt me a little bit. How does this movie compare to stack up against the previous Dragon Ball movies? Just real quick. I think when we reviewed it on our podcast um, way back, I think we failed it. We gave it like a one out of five. Oh, I, I was oh. referring to like, you know, there are some good Dragon Ball movies and maybe some less good ones. So, but, you know, if, if you if you watch them, I don't know if uh, if you'd rank stack it up that yeah, way or not. We did sort of discuss that. We, we reviewed it on episode 172. Gotcha. We'll it, put I, a link up maybe if we remember to put a link up. I think it's worse than all the movies. It's the worst movie that there is, except for Bio Broly and maybe the second Broly movie. And Other those are than pretty that, low bars, because I remember seeing those movies. I mean, we're talking about a movie where the villain, the big event that pisses the villain off and spurs the villain to like fight everybody, is that Majin Buu will not let the villain eat any of any of his Buu pudding. That actually sounds <laughs> very Akira Toriyama-like. I understand why this is canonical now. And ironically enough, at the supermarkets here for about a month, you actually could purchase your own frozen yogurt boo pudding for the low price of 400 yen. Of course. And it's like a it was like a pink oozy pudding that looked like the stuff that's in the bathtub in Ghostbusters. I would expect oh, no. nothing <laughs> less from boo pudding. It has to look booish. <laughs> but but why is it boo? Like it doesn't that doesn't look like boo. And, and so they take two little two. Only two black sprinkles and place them strategically on the pudding to make it look like Boo's eyes. And that's it. Boo pudding. Oh, man. They also had Super Saiyan Goku French fries, which was like a the, the container looked like Goku's face. And then the French oh, fries were the hair. <laughs> I've, I've seen and pictures the, of those. And then they had Dragon Ball pizza bites. You get a tray with seven Dragon Ball pizza bites in it that looks like Dragon Balls. <laughs> and they were and they were really bad. <laughs> Japan should not be allowed to make pizza. I've seen some awful, awful pictures. But anyway, I guess, um, you know, we've been here almost an hour. We haven't actually gotten into what we are ostensibly here to talk about. Right.
so uh, we may as well get to it. I guess no one here has seen this movie. So tell us about, just in general, how the reaction to Japan has to these Studio Ghibli films versus anime. I mean, you're saying it's like they're playing the songs at elementary schools every day. And uh, the rest of anime, by comparison, probably doesn't get that kind of attention, huh? Okay, so the thing about Ghibli is that everybody loves it. I, I don't, I don't, I won't say unconditionally, but whether they're older people or younger people, everyone knows Ghibli and everybody loves it. Young kids have even seen the old Ghibli movies. You know, I'd be like, oh, I'll say my favorite Ghibli character is is Naushka, and they, oh my gosh, I love her. So the love for Ghibli runs deep in this country. I think it's a little bit sad, but I will say I don't think it runs as deep as Disney. Disney is bigger than Ghibli in Japan. Mm. That's what I've observed. But overall, you know, whereas not everybody would watch an anime movie or just like a regular like like Attack on Titan, everybody's willing to go and see the new Ghibli film. I guess it's almost like a like every two years the country gets unified in some small way by the new Ghibli movie coming out and everybody shares on something together. So it's a little bit special. All right. So I guess that's pretty much in keeping with everything we've always heard. So glad to know we aren't getting total bullshit information. But <laughs> So the, the movie came out two days ago as of this recording. It came out on Saturday the 20th. So you basically saw it opening day. Is that correct? Yes, I saw it opening day. Not in IMAX or anything like that, but yeah. Yeah, there wouldn't have been an IMAX for a Ghibli movie, but I just... So so tell us about, like, did you have to wait in line for hours? Was it, like, a huge sort of deal since you're saying everyone goes seeing the thing? The movie theater experience in Japan is a little different than it is in America. It's similar in many ways because it's obviously a, a concept they pulled right out of American culture, just like a lot of stuff. But there was not a tremendously large line, but they also have a lot of ticket people that, you know, give you your, a lot of counters, so... The line moves fast. It's not like over here where every time you go to the theater, no matter how busy it is, they never have every single booth open. There's always only two. How, how I waited in line for like 40 minutes to see one of the Batman movies. <laughs> hmm. uh, no, it's, it wasn't like that at all. And they're not assholes at all, you know, like like the ticket people in America sometimes. But you go up and they have like a screen at, at, at where, where you buy your ticket. And it shows you all the seats in the theater that are vacant. Okay, reserved seating. Yep, you have to reserve your seats just like on an airplane when you're on the internet and you say, oh, I want, I want, the, I want the aisle seat. Because everything's, in Japan, everything is so organized, it's unbelievable. And because Japan's culture is centers so much around and not inconveniencing other people, even if you're watching a funny movie, like, I, I, you could almost call the Dragon Ball Z movie a comedy. Even if it's funny, no one in the theater will laugh, ever. I'm talking about dead silence. Hmm. Like they've they've got wow. popcorn, they've got drinks, they've got crinkly candy, but you will not hear any noise ever. And do they have they like laugh. some specially? Do they have like some specially bred popcorn that doesn't crunch or something? Or nope, nope. It's, <laughs> <laughs> nope. There's no like robot popcorn or anything like that. So Jeez. it's interesting. So it's the movie theater experience is interesting. And as a as a foreigner who always sl- slips like a Red Bull into the movie theater. Having that sound when I have my Red Bull, I'm sure every single foreigner in the theater like stared at me. <laughs> Just the foreigners, not the actual Japanese. Or every, every Japanese person stared at me because I'm because I'm a foreigner. Rather, <laughs> there were no other foreigners at this movie. Just us. Here's basically what we know about this movie. All right, other okay. than Hayao Miyazaki made it, and therefore, you know, he spent however many years at Studio Ghibli telling everyone to make this movie exactly as I say, or else there's the door. He, they just announced, like, you know, shortly before the movie came out, who the cast was going to be. 
And of course, uh, the that the made headlines part. here because yeah. even though people in America have very little concept of who Japanese voice talent are, they certainly knew who was the voice of the main character because the right. voice of the main character in this is Hideaki Anno, who is not a voice actor at all. He is a anime director. And an awkward one at that. Yeah, best and, known uh, for making uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, but he also worked on Gainax on things like Gunbuster and Nadia and all that jazz. He has acted before. When he was in his student days, he did like a weird... That Ultraman, Ultraman thing, thing doesn't really count as... <laughs> well, I mean, it's but, acting like quote-unquote, I suppose. But, I, uh, I guess yeah. you can say it counts as a film if you try to you know get people on the casting couch. But Hideaki Anno, as the uh, guy who developed the zero fighter is that correct is that what this is about yeah that's basically it it's a biographical film about jiro horikoshi who is the engineer that developed and created the design for the world war ii aircraft the zero fighter aka the thing that attacked pearl harbor exactly yeah so that's why miyazaki loves this plane so dearly (laughs) <laughs> and, and the and the suicide and the kamikaze pilot air, aircraft that's what i mean those are what attack pearl harbor kamikaze right. attacks yes that's that's the i guess that's the so how do you make a movie yeah. out of this do they like glorify it is it kind of like the equivalent of like that steven soderbergh movie he really wanted to make about lenny Riefenstahl that no one would let him do because no one would want to see it like how does this work like do they paint him as kind of like this sort of reluctant guy or is he like like what's the deal with this movie like where does it like actually go is it just about i want to build a plane guys then he does some sketches and they build a plane so i definitely can answer that question but i want to step back a minute and sort of talk about miyazaki's obsession with airplanes sure i mean he named the studio ghibli after all believe it or not i i looked it up after i finished watching the movie and miyazaki's family actually owned a company which produced wingtips for the zero fighters some people, I guess, have, have postulated that that's the source of Miyazaki's love for flying. And if you think about his old movies, most of his films have some extraordinary flying scene in them. Like, of course, Naushka has flying. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't actually think of one that doesn't, now that I think about it. Like, I mean, yeah. Was Porco there flying Rosa, in Ponyo? There wa- well, there wasn't, but there is the scene where she's like kind of sort of flying on the on the waves in the water. I don't count that, but... Um, but no, it's certainly it, it, well documented yeah. that there's always usually the obligatory Miyazaki flying device. And certainly he loves them planes. This movie is no different. I mean, it really is a love letter to a lot, to, avi- to aviation. But regarding your question about like the tone of the movie, I guess, considering this is this could basically be a prequel to Grave of the Fireflies or, or a prequel to Barefoot Gen, <laughs> which, which you mentioned earlier. And I was biting my tongue. I really wanted to say something, but I didn't want to jump the gun on the review. The movie really has a positive tone throughout the whole thing. There's no dark war tone looming over the film. At the very end, they sort of mention that, you know, there will be a war, but it's not really a part of the movie. So it's basically like if they were to make a movie about a guy in Germany who really liked making ovens. (laughs) (laughs) And he just wanted to make the best darn oven possible. One that could get really hot and and just, just, just burn away all the fat and the bone and in the end they're like okay we can get some people in here there are actually a lot of those germans in this movie <laughs> oh lovely so, of course they're so, our allies not- goto our allies <laughs> so i i suspect that this is going to be one of the weird sort of controversial 
Miyazaki movies, or at least it seems like this. I think it's just going to be a weird movie (laughs) to watch as foreigners. Well, I mean, I'm interested in this because, I mean, ever since I think Spirited Away, we've seen kind of this weird progression with Miyazaki as he's getting older. And I'm interested. There's a lot of save the trees. A lot of war is bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, this one is war is bad. bad. Planes are cool. Yeah. (laughs) Is that accurate? That's accurate. I would say that's accurate of his old movies. Let's talk about this one. There's no real environmental message in this movie at all. Obviously, there is planes are cool. But even though there are those Germans in the movie, and yes, there are the those airplanes that blew up Pearl Harbor, the movie never, you wouldn't, unless you knew the history of, of World War II, you wouldn't really think about that at all because that doesn't really have a part in the film. They're never mentioned as Nazis. Just like how Japan teaches in elementary schools and, and also high schools then. Yes, and also how and how Japan's Japan's uh, take on World War II and the uh, A bomb dome in Hiroshima. <laughs> That's maybe a different different topic, but um, that tone doesn't really. I don't know if the movie will feel controversial or not in the future because it just doesn't. People might not like it because they know what the movie what comes next in the story. The, but the main character in the movie is really just portrayed as a man who loves airplanes, who wants to create, quote-unquote, something beautiful. And that that word is thrown around a lot in the movie. You hear the word beautiful in this movie probably a hundred times. Whoa. (laughs) And it's really about the beauty of designing an aircraft, the elegance of flying, and ultimately the main character's life. That's really the focus. It's not really focused on the war or the Nazis or Pearl Harbor. The closest or else. thing I can draw a comparison to is Porco Rosso. How similar to Porco Rosso is this? This movie could not be less similar to Porco Rosso. Hmm. So one of the things that I thought when I left this movie was that people who love Miyazaki and know his style for always having a heavy fantasy element. So even in Porco Rosso, which is almost one of the more realistic films, despite, you know, him being a pig. Right. That movie is probably one of the most realistic movies he has. But this movie will not feel like a Ghibli film to you. Like, it looks like Miyazaki because the characters look like Ghibli characters. And it has some of the some of his typical themes in it, such as airplanes. But it feels more like a Takahata film to me. Okay, that's what I was just about to ask. Like, is it because it sounds more like a Takahata Absolutely. It's it is is set in in, in the real world and it's actually a little bit dry, I'll say, Mm. which is fascinating Um, because Takahata's allegedly got a movie coming out this year because they let him out once every decade. And (laughs) uh, his movie is actually going to be more fantasy based this time. It's going to be Tale the Bamboo Cutter, right? I saw a trailer for that movie before before the Miyazaki film started. And let me tell you, I am more excited for that movie after seeing the trailer than I've been for an anime in a long time. The way that they're animating that movie is just incredible. It's very much along the lines of, it's sort of an unusual art style like like My Neighbor the Amadas. Right, that was the last that, thing that he did before they locked him away. This movie coming up, I think, will be great. But Well, I mean, he's also, like 86 or something, so it takes <laughs> yeah, a long time. Both of us, we're all convinced here that, like, okay, these are the final movies these guys are going to make. And, of course, Miyazaki's on the beat saying, oh, no, I got more coming. Well, for the past, like, 15 years, Miyazaki's been like, this is my last one. That's the last big movie I'm making. So, so for I'm now, him like, to say I got more coming means he's going to die. Yeah, pretty much. I hope, I hope Maybe. not. <laughs> what, what do I you think bad, is but... going to happen to that studio... Once these two guys are gone, do you think it's going to it's going to keep going? Like, I, I don't know. Like, did you see from up on Poppy Hill? 
Come up on Poppy Hill is the only Ghibli movie I haven't seen. Okay, so you, it's it's pretty good. It's like uh, the one Ghibli movie you shouldn't see is probably Tales from Earthsea, and yes. um, Poppy Hill is way better than that movie. But here's okay, good. here's my take on Poppy Hill is that it it doesn't feel like a movie from a new person. It feels like a movie made by someone who was told by Hayao Miyazaki exactly what to do, mm. and he did exactly that, and yeah. so. I made the joke when I did the review of From Up on Poppy Hill that when these guys die, they're just going to fill Studio Ghibli up with concrete and make it a giant sarcophagus with the animators inside it that so they can accompany them to the afterlife and continue <laughs> working for them. Because I just, uh, you know, for all the acclaim that that studio has, it just doesn't seem like they've cultivated an environment where they can bring up any new up and coming talent. I just see like all the people in order to break out and do something, they have to leave in order to make a, like a name for themselves. You know, Hosted is sort of the most high profile latest example of that. But as far as this movie, you said it's totally different from every other Miyazaki film such that it felt more Takahata like. And I wonder if that's just a result of Miyazaki going crazy and weird, like how was Hideaki Anno as the main character? Yeah. Can he act? Before I answer that, I will also say that this movie, the new movie does not have a strong female lead character. There is no lead female character. So also a huge, a huge change from Miyazaki's other movies. I don't know that he's ever had done that before. Well, it felt like Ponyo was a step back in that regard too. Ponyo was a step back mm. in kind of every regard. Yeah. They're yeah. little, they're little kids. I don't know. But, but the, even the felt mo- like she was kind of at the mercy of other forces besides herself, but whatever. Even the mother in Ponyo, though, is, is really strong. I guess, yeah. And determined, so... Make some good ham. The, the, the director that I think may, that I have hope for, that I think can, can help carry Ghibli into the future, is uh, Hiromasa Yonebayashi, who yeah, directed yeah, yeah. Yeah, the totally. Audietti film. I, I loved Audietti. I thought it was amazing, but... Guess what? Miyazaki did the screenplay. Yeah. So and, yeah. here's what the main thing I noticed about from up on Poppy Hill is that even though Goro Miyazaki directed it and all that, it starts off immediately with Hayao Miyazaki, you know, in big giant letters to let everyone know who's who's really running the show. And I feel like in my memory's a little sh- shady on it because I only saw Arietti like maybe once. I feel like Arietti did the same thing. Could be wrong about that, but it's right. just. It feels like these people aren't given a chance to actually do something like, you know, Miyazaki will write the story and maybe do the storyboard. <laughs> and well, now that I look at it, uh, Miyazaki did the screenplay for for, for from up on Poppy. Hill yeah, yeah exactly. That's what <laughs> so. I'm talking about. It's like he wrote that movie and he did a lot of stuff. So it just feels like everyone is is following his direction because it just seems like the way it works there is that you either do what Miyazaki says exactly the way he wants you to do it, or there's the door. And, you know, he'll let Takahata out of his cage once a decade to, you know, do something weird that uh, <laughs> is critically acclaimed that, you know, people don't really like internationally. And then back in the hole he goes. If you make daddy angry, he'll get, he'll, he'll, he'll leave your movie from premiere and go smoke cherry brand cigarettes out in the lobby. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, you asked about Ono. Yeah. Let's hear um, it. So we all agreed that. We didn't like his performance very much. <laughs> what a surprise. The, uh, so what it, a surprise. It, in the movie, there is a time jump because it is a biography. And it, it does go from a story about a, a young child with dreams of flying. And and Anna was the voice of the young child like Kevin Costner was in Wyatt Earp. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Actually, I don't know if he, I don't think, you know, he couldn't have done the probably young voice. They probably got uh, a girl. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> of course, the movie jumps forward to, you know, the point in time where he's actually designing airplanes. And we all thought that his voice was a little wooden and one tone in the movie. That does, but, that does not surprise me at all. I mean, I've seen him and he doesn't <laughs> seem to have a lot of intonation. Mm. Yeah. But his voice did have a, a, a very weathered quality that really, I think we, we kind of agreed is rare among Seiyu. Hmm. So I honestly thought his voice fit the character quite well, but I didn't think his, his actual performance was particularly good. And maybe that's just because he hasn't done a lot of voice acting. Hmm. Yeah, so. it, it just seems like such a strange choice. Like almost a stunt casting. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, there Could are. Could be. I mean, I know that Miyazaki, or at least for for larger things like this, would oftentimes just get not even like voice actors, but just like straight up film actors or theater actors, or theater actors and such. And to get Anno, who has got very little acting experience, and what little he's done has been very like watching a nerd act is very wooden. Yeah, so it doesn't that doesn't surprise me at all what you say. Now in terms of like the look and presentation of the movie, like obviously we we've all seen that poster, we've all seen that trailer. It's like, yep, Studio Ghibli style, all right. Do you think it's like any better or worse looking than uh previous movies as far as all that stuff is concerned? Like certainly we've we've seen how they handle planes in Porco Rosso, but that was 20 some years ago. How does this one sort of look? I still think the most impressive visual Ghibli film is Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this movie is is still incredible. I mean, there are to some ways. Like, oh, absolutely. There are some ways that they do things in this movie, and some of the see some of the scenes where you really see Ghibli flex its muscle, its animation prowess. There was a scene where they kind of showed an overview, like an overshot of a busy area of Tokyo. It was very high up, but there must have been 300 individually moving people on the screen at the same time. It was just wow. incredible. It was only maybe four seconds. But still, to animate that, it must have just been, I can't imagine how hell-raising that must have been for the staff, but I can just, I can just see Miyazaki behind them with like a whip, just like, you know, beating on them. I'm pretty sure Miyazaki had a giant up. commissar hat and a pistol. <laughs> <laughs> just shot them in the ankles constantly. Uh, ankles? You know. <laughs> now, just as as kind of a, you know, baseline, maybe you, you mentioned this, but what is your favorite Miyazaki movie? Like, everybody usually has one. So it's kind of we have a baseline. Well, we ranked these movies recently before we watched the movie because we wanted to sort of slide this film into the ranking of the overall Ghibli movies. And mm -hmm. we decided that Princess Mononoke, after we averaged it, is the best Ghibli movie. But my favorite Ghibli film is Naushka. Okay. Both acceptable choices. Because both, really, I both excellent. Yeah. I love the character of so much. Uh, the ending of Naushka is not the strongest, but the character... Her character is just incredible. We also love Kiki's delivery service. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just to answer your question. No, well, where does this one sort of fit into all that? We had all 20 movies in there, and we placed... Do you want me to just tell you where we put it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, unless you, you want to... You don't have to give it a number if you want to say, like, you know, a ballpark. It was somewhere in the middle. We put it just under Pompoko. Okay. So in, in the world of Miyazaki and Ghibli, this is, like, super average then where would it f be relative to say Howl's moving castle we had it 
three places above House Moving Castle. Okay, so better than House Moving Castle. We so, so we don't the, we don't like House Moving Castle. That's basically what I'm trying to passively aggressively get at. <laughs> yeah, the, the the fastest moving movie ever made. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't want to get into that. It'll end it'll end up being a rant from me probably. And what, uh, is, the, it, what is the lowest ranked movie on that list? So we have also that baseline. Well, granted, we hadn't. Not all of us had seen Poppy Hill, Tales from Earthsea, and Ocean Waves, but those are the three lowest. I would put Ocean Waves at the very fucking bottom because <laughs> really fuck worse that than Earthsea. Yes, it's debatable. I wrote an article on Otaku USA Online about how fucking horrible I can hear the sea is, and <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen that. You one. totally saw it at Anime Sushi or at Jayco or one of those because oh. I, I was I was there and. Okay. It almost definitely was anime sushi. I guess it was so bad I blocked it from my memory. <laughs> well, I wrote the article months ago so I can restate what I basically said. When we go to see these Studio Ghibli films, we expect to see something that is unlike anything anybody else is doing anywhere. Mm-hmm. And we get that. We've been getting it for a while such that, you know, it's the the norm. Right. The deal with I Can Hear the Sea or Ocean Waves, as it's called, is that the heart was in the right place because the idea was we'll let the young staff make their own thing and they'll do whatever they want. They'll write it. They'll animate it, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, yeah, we've got the, the best uh, I Can Hear the Sea animated GIF here in the Skype chat. But basically what they made felt effectively like what most anime of the time was like or what a lot of anime at the time was like because mm. roughly concurrent with I Can Hear the Sea was stuff like Kimagri Orange Road and Maze on Ikoku and all these various sort of teen angsty love triangle sorts of things. The guy who directed it also did Kimagri Orange Road and so on and so forth. So it, it just feels that guy's like... That a weird guy. Yeah, it, really he, he's, weird. Done, he's done good stuff and I like some of the stuff he's done. Don't get me wrong. He's, he's mm-hmm. talented. But, 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 but he's a weird dude. It does yeah. feel very derivative of prior work that you can look at this and see okay this is happening because the same thing happened in Kamagri Orange Road and that's basically the deal with I Can Hear the Sea is that it, when you watch Ghibli films you're not supposed to be watching saying oh this feels just like other anime most people when you watch a Ghibli thing it's like oh it's so unlike anime a lot of people don't even consider Ghibli films anime <laughs> they say like oh it's a whole other ballpark uh, you know, I don't agree with that interpretation, but I'm just saying that's out there. So I wouldn't put from up on Poppy Hill at the very bottom. But yeah, definitely those worst two would be Earth Sea and Ocean Waves. Or I can well, that, see. You'll be happy because that's exactly how we had it placed. OK, and, perfect. Uh, since we did the bottom, the top the top five were Grave of the Fireflies at the top. Princess Mononoke, My Neighbor the Yamadas, Kiki's Slivery wow. Service, Porco, Porco Rosso. My Neighbor the Yamadas that high. Wow. We uh, love yeah. that movie. Interesting. We, we think it's the most perfect example of a slice of life movie that exists. Hmm. And that everybody else should just give up on slice of life. Mm, well, I disagree <laughs> that that's the definition of slice of life, but it's another story. Uh, you know, yeah, my neighbor's the Yamadas is definitely a lot of vignettes about stuff. It's basically like the peanuts only, you know, Japanese. I consider it kind of a middle one, but yeah, I mean, I usually would put like only yesterday, something a little higher up there, but you know, your mileage may vary. Yeah, my, my yeah. personal favorite is actually a uh, yeah Porco Rosso. Yeah, I usually That's, you know I've I've said Porco it, Rosso yeah. at times. I've said Princess Mononoke. I've said Only Yesterday, depending on mm-hmm. what day of the week you catch me on. You know, those are yeah. typically picks I would I would have up there. But yeah, it's not like most of these movies are outright bad anyway. You may as well watch you know all of them. But I've never ever succeeded in getting people to watch all these things. So, so overall, yeah. sounds like you were you were glad that you saw the movie or or what? 
even though it's just sort of middle for Ghibli, how does that rank relative to like things in general? This movie is still really excellent. The most notable points about the film are that we really thought that this was Miyazaki's most personal movie. Hmm. And in a lot of ways, we sort of... Was that a cat sneezing or, we, or somebody just really bored? It might be my cat. Okay. She's <laughs> getting in my That's face. a big kitty. <laughs> we, uh, so Miyazaki's most personal film, you were saying. His most, most personal film. And in a lot of ways, we sort of feel like Miyazaki's sort of placing himself as the main character in the movie. Originally, years ago, we heard that he was making an autobiography. Everybody sucks but me, the Hayao Miyazaki story. <laughs> I mean, working the, time. get off my lawn, you damn kids. <laughs> the main character in the movie even smokes the same brand of cigarettes that Miyazaki smokes. Cherry brand cigarettes. There are a lot of similarities there. But ultimately, we really didn't like the main character too much because he feels too perfect in the movie. Mm. In the beginning of the film, he's almost even heroic. So... He really doesn't have any flaws other than that he works too much. Maybe a little bit more of Miyazaki there. I, I can see how Miyazaki might see this that. This is probably which, how he sees himself. I can I can see yeah. that. Which is really interesting because when you said that, what immediately came to mind for me was more personal than Porco Rosso, which really feels like Miyazaki's... I mean, I haven't seen this movie you're talking about, but that seems like Miyazaki's like very personal movie about I'm an older man who didn't accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. and. And that this movie is polar opposite from Porco Rosso, as yeah. you said before. Very different. And I sort of feel like to have an interesting character, they need to have at least some flaws, you know? Agreed, it, yeah. Interesting people are flawed, and Jiro in the movie is so perfect. I mean, he's just, I don't know if Miyazaki views are, himself as Are there as points so perfect, where, and, you know, we're trying to keep this as spoiler-free as possible because certainly none of us has seen the movie, but are there points where, like, other people have plane designs and Jiro is like, this is all garbage <laughs> compared to what I got. There's a lot of him visiting the Nazi airplanes <laughs> and riding in German aircrafts. And but that sounds more like a, Leiji Matsumoto's dream. <laughs> mostly, he's amazed by them. He's not, you know, my he's aircraft's not unimpressed because a lot of the movie is there's a lot of trial and error with the creation of, of an aircraft that finally is successful, and so. He's not like this airplane, you know, god. I mean, eventually there is a, he does create an airplane that is incredibly successful and really powerful at the time and very, very agile. But for a lot of the movie is him trying to figure it out. Honestly, that was sort of my, the part of the movie that I thought hurt the film the most was because unless you're a person that really loves engineering, I mean, there's a fair amount of minutes in the movie where they actually are sitting down at a drafting table drawing like lines and doing math like it's how, how well did you understand those sorts of conversations given that it's probably maybe beyond the jlpt one or well, however they rank that the conversations about like engineering design and stuff like that tend to be difficult but fortunately ghibli movies they the characters do a lot of sort of speaking in the way that they act like their their emotions and their actions are really realistic so you sort of get the feel. Like there was a scene where where one of the really higher up guys came in to the studio, I guess, and they're talking about the design. And even though one of our co-hosts, Cram, is is a, is a little stronger at Japanese than I am, but even though I couldn't understand everything they were saying, the message of what was happening was pretty clear. Yeah, but I, guess, I guess little kids do have to watch these movies. So uh, you yeah. did mention that they don't discipline like these little kids under ten at all. These movies are for really young children. 
how do they manage to not be really rowdy and disruptive in the theater like little kids here? There were no little kids. There oh, were wow. no little kids at the theater. And actually, I don't believe that this is a kid's movie. There's been some talk in Japan so far about the film. There's a lot of mixed feelings about it. Mostly the positive impressions are coming from adults, but the overall opinion at this point, and after only two days, is that kids generally don't enjoy the movie. And that's because, especially in the middle hour, I hate to say it, but it's a little boring. Hmm. It's How long really, is the movie, by the way? It's just over two hours. Only Japan will do that. It's a little thick on the on the we're going to design an airplane and not uh, and not enough of things that really entertain people. Like if you're an engineer who loves aircraft, you probably are going to be just in heaven watching the movie in the middle <laughs> section. But if you're a normal person who sort of appreciates airplanes but loves Miyazaki for how for what you've seen from him in the last 20 years, you're going to feel a little stunned watching this movie because it's very different. It's interesting because the only theatrical films I can think of that really are about like building some sort of flying craft, it's, you know, this movie, Porco Rosso, The Wings of Oniamis. Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing after mm. that. It's definitely a unique movie, and I, I can't really criticize it too much for what it does because Miyazaki clearly is trying to do something, and I think he did it well. It's just not what we expect from him traditionally. Well, I'm kind of glad it's not what we expect from him just because, I mean, he's sort of fallen into a rut and like been coasting on laurels so to speak for i feel since princess mononoke or even maybe if you want to be generous in spirited away and it's easy to forget spirited away is like 12 years ago at this point it's un unbelievable yeah i mean I, i'm actually i'm glad to hear that i'm looking at the crew for it and i don't see who the producer is probably suzuki right isn't he like well, the producer and all that remember toshio suzuki i don't think was the producer for ponyo at least i don't no, I know that uh, one of the issues was that no one was there to rein him in for Ponyo. I wonder if anyone's been there to rein him in, like, for a long time. Uh, apparently, Suzuki is the only one who can. The guy with the money always eventually has the last word, I suppose. And so I'm interested in that this is something that he's, he's trying different. Like, uh, it makes me wonder not as much about this movie, but what he's going to make after this. Mm. Yeah, Toshio Suzuki is listed as the producer of Ponyo. Okay. I know that it's he was much more hands-off or something. His next movie, for me, will be very unpredictable. Do you think there'll be a next movie? Mm. Before he you dies know, I, of a lung cancer. I honestly... <laughs> Miyazaki actually isn't as old as I thought he is. Yeah, he's um, like 90. No, he's... <laughs> he's, he's only 72. So 72 given, in a lifetime of chain smoking. Maybe he's got yeah. another seven years at the rate that they go in Japan. huh? But, but they live. Yeah, they live forever. So he keeps saying it's his last movie. But no, no, he said but, this time but, specifically, it's not his last movie. Well, yeah, that's what I was. I mean, this time he said it's not. I really think he'll make another film. This doesn't feel like his final foray into the world of animation. But I, I can't really predict accurately how I think his next movie will, will be because now that he's made such a serious movie, I kind of think he'll return to the fantasy elements that he loves to use in his movies. Now, we've talked a lot about a lot of the general aspects of the movie. And of course, one of the things I pointed out in From Up on Poppy Hill that sort of made it feel at least a little different from the rest of the stuff, and this also applies to I Can Hear the Sea, is the music. In the case of those, they were done by somebody other than Joey Saishi. Of course, this one, Joey Saishi is the composer for both this and Takahata's next movie because he's like the he only the guy who's allowed. 
Yeah. And anyone else is allowed gets one shot and that's it. How would you think the the musical score of this stacks up against Hisaishi's other film scores for like the other Ghibli films even since he mostly deals with that? The score is beautiful. Like the, what kind the, of instruments and stuff is he messing with this time? He's using a lot of full orchestrals in this movie. Full orchestra. So you have like you have he uses generally the whole array. But nothing weird, you know, there have been times before in his movies where he's really experimented. Well, yeah, especially back in the Nausicaa days, it was all yeah, like synthesizers. synthesizers. Yeah. But one of the things that I noted heavily in this movie is that the main theme that he uses for the film, he uses a lot of variations on the same theme. I love Hisaishi, but I don't think this is his best musical performance. But the music is still really really enjoyable and i think that it, it fits into the movie without being uh distracting if that makes sense okay um okay yeah he but he he has a strong main theme and he kind of keeps going back to that theme over and over and even more than the music the most interesting thing about the sound in the film was the sound effects now hmm. i can't recall if they did this in porco Rosso or not because i haven't seen that movie in a couple years but it sounded like all the sound effects in the movie, especially the the sounds of the engines, were made using just like human mouth sound effects, like a like a per- <laughs> like a person <laughs> like you got Michael just Winslow being like yeah, like the as yeah like the uh, like the guy from Police Academy yeah it's like Michael Winslow studio. Michael Winslow is making the sound effects in the studio for the engine to the point where I'm pretty sure that's what they did because there are some points in the in the movie where I'm I was 100 percent sure it was a human being. The, the especially have like the propellers starting and the engine going. Is there any gunfire in this? So someone's going like, or or is there a dog? There are bombs in the movie. Oh god! But I don't think there's any gunfire. Oh, there was there wasn't just a guy going dokan just Japanese onomatopoeia sound effects. Yeah. Yeah, which oftentimes I'm like, really? Like, that doesn't sound at all like penis going in. But anyway, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it sounds but- like um, we'll probably when we see this movie, it's a good way to temper our expectations of it. Hopefully we didn't sort of give too much away. We've been talking about half an hour about the movie. I wasn't sure if you if you had to go soon or not. It does make me wonder how they're going to release this here. Probably the same way they release all the movies. Mm. Well, a lot of them come to theaters and but I mean Miyazaki stuff has been very It's the Takahata stuff that either hits direct to video or not at all. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying that this won't come over here, but it seems like it's a it's a different sort of sell than Ponyo. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, because it doesn't have those fantasy elements, I suppose it's possible that it might not get a high-profile release. And it has the Germans. Yes. (laughs) This movie, I worry about how it'll do in America. Mm. Because people in America are going to feel betrayed by the movie because they're going to go into the movie and they're going to spend their 12 bucks, and it's not what they're going to expect from Miyazaki's brand name. Right. And not only that, it's got a lot of Nazis and people that know history know that the next chapter in the movie and in fact at the end of the movie they they sort of in, indicate that even though they don't show any war that that the planes will be used for war so ironically even though even though they're beautiful creations as they say numerous times in the movie his beautiful creation is going to be used to kill tens of thousands of people and but, that's why and, i'm kind of interested that he he is choosing that real setting because even if they don't discuss it obviously the audience knows that well, that's the case. Yeah. And so I, well, I find it interesting that he didn't go for 
like a Royal Space Force type of situation where it's a fictionalized setting where it doesn't have that connection. I, I don't know. I Maybe he just doesn't care. Depends. Well, I, I also wonder, you know, Japan's, at least, you know, from my, you know, outsider perspective, Japan's relationship with the Nazis seems very different from ours. Well, sure, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, remember, they were allies, and so... I already made the Pat too, joke. It makes me wonder, like, if, if he's even thinking about that when he's making this. Is is he thinking about, you know, are Jewish people, you know, worldwide going to see this well, movie? And I don't even think, of- think it's necessarily so much a Nazi specifically, just as, like, World War II in general. I mean, even if you're just looking at the Japanese context, mm. you know, still, you my, still my- have that kind of issue. So, I I mean, I wonder then, yeah, if it's a case of that there is something specific that he's getting at about the fact that the audience knows that these beautiful aircraft, what they're going to be used for, or yeah, if he just doesn't care. My co-host Chiaki, who you guys know, told me after the movie that she felt a little awkward being in the theater as one of the only Americans in the theater, you know, surrounded by Japanese people. (laughs) When with a movie that obviously everybody knows, you know, what comes next in the story. So it was definitely in our minds. And I think that that's how people in America are going to no, no one's going to get through this movie who's 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 over age 20 and is going to think, oh, Pearl Harbor. It almost glorifies the airplanes that blew up Pearl Harbor. And in fact, it does. So I worry that there's going to be some negative. There's going to be some sour grapes with some people in, in the States about that. I'm thinking mm-hmm. that so. it's sort of indicative of just in that sense that this Ghibli film is actually more like typical anime because, you know, you frequently hear whenever people ask Japanese anime creators, like, were you thinking of international audiences? And all of them, except for Yoshiaki Kawajiri, says, no, we absolutely weren't. We were making it entirely for domestic because that's where we get our money. And, you know, however it does, the rest of the world doesn't really affect us one way or another. <laughs> Typically, when Miyazaki would make his films, I would frequently say the difference between Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata fundamentally was that Miyazaki makes movies for the world and Takahata makes movies for Japan. And so when Mitsugi, when you earlier were saying this feels like a Takahata film, well, mm-hmm. this is a movie made for Japan and pretty much nobody else. Whereas, typically speaking, his films would be a little more universal in terms of their themes and appeal. So I, I think in, in some ways, Studio Ghibli is sort of maybe being a little less distanced from the rest of anime in that sense, because it's such a domestically tailored thing when in the past it didn't used to be. I mean, even though Spirited Away certainly had a lot of cultural Japanese imagery, it was something that, you know, you kind of show to people anywhere. And it's just sort of a weird thing, which is sort of the idea. You could be right about that. Well, it's uh... interesting because then looking at that in combination with, you know, sort of what you were saying earlier about how there's so much of the heavy focus on the airplanes that if you're not really knowledgeable about that or really into it, it kind of drags or it's, it's a little more difficult to connect with and... Yeah, I mean, I don't know then if it's that this movie is made for Japan or if it's so much that Miyazaki has reached a point where this movie is just basically for him. Well, I that's would, sort I, of. I actually thought Ponyo was that point. Yeah, maybe, but this sounds much more so. More so. Yeah. We we sort of felt like it was Miyazaki's. You know, I've worked really hard for Lottie for decades, and I want to make a movie that's just for me. And mm-hmm. Miyazaki doesn't care what anybody else thinks. The right. Even back when that documentary crew was following him prior to Ponyo's release, 
even though he agreed, you know, there were num- numerous times where he'd be like, get that camera out of my face or I don't want you guys here right now. He, d- he just doesn't care about that stuff. And I mean, he is he bulletproof, it, to be fair. I mean, I no mean, one's going to yeah, ever tell much. him no. He, he wanted to make a movie that he wanted to make. And, you know, whether the main character is meant to be him or not, this movie is very personal to him. And I just don't think he cares if, if America doesn't like it or, or whatever. I mean, e- even Spirited Away only made 4% of its total gross. I'm looking at it on Box Office Mojo. Only made 4% of its gross in America. Like, I, don't, I just don't it's, see It's a drop in care. the bucket that they don't care yeah. about America. Like... I wonder if the, if it's Jesus going to go, you know, full M Night Shyamalan in the next movie and just like insert himself <laughs> as like Jesus and or or the Buddha or something. It's uh, <laughs> I, I do wonder. This is why I was saying like I'm I'm more interested now in what his next movie is going to be. Well, how, how many years was it between them? I think we'll have to wait a while. Yeah, I mean, he takes uh, a good, like you know, three years, yeah, four or five years at least. I, I mean, I'd be stunned if he wasn't already making on working on the next movie. At least, yeah. at least working on the creative process for it. I'm sure any excuse so. to not talk to his family. So, <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, uh, which, you know, do you have any like final thoughts to wrap this up? As far as uh, your thought of the wind rises, the the message I would I would send to people that are going to see the movie, and I'm sure it's most people, is a lot of the same. I think that I you know, appreciate the movie for the beauty that it is, and it's in in the art and the music make sure to pay attention to the irony in the film that, you know, something that's created with the intention of being so beautiful can be used for something so dark at the end of the day. At the, but also this, your typical Miyazaki film. So go to the movie with an open mind and don't expect it to be Howl's Moving Castle because it couldn't be more different than Howl's Moving Castle. So mm-hmm. we've never seen anything like this from Miyazaki before. So is, if you go to the film expecting to not see Spirited Away, maybe everybody will enjoy it a little bit more. Yeah. On the subject of Spirit Away, I mean, we were talking about that documentary where, you know, Miyazaki thought he was bulletproof. I'm sorry, after Spirit Away. And I was just thinking like, man, he must have thought he was, don't give no shits because he got his Oscar. And then I remembered he snubbed the Oscars because he was yeah. like, oh, you know, America's bombing Iraq. <laughs> I wonder what they're bombing them with, Hayao Miyazaki. Oh, or, that's right. <laughs> planes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, you know, maybe they're not planes from Glorious Nippon. So anyway, I guess on that note, we'll probably this up. If you have any comments for us, please uh, go ahead and leave them on the website. That's AnimeWorldOrder.com. Please check out the AAA podcast over at www.aaapodcast.com. That's Anime Addicts Anonymous. Special thanks to our uh, good friend Mitsugi. Over there. Hey, thanks for having in, me. In uh, Japan land. Our website, AnimeWorldOrder.com. As uh, usual, if you've got emails for us, it's animeworldorder at gmail.com. And on Twitter, you can follow us at Anime World Order. And um, please go to the website because we'll have the supplemental links to all the other stuff. Because I'm sure we've had guest appearances on other podcasts and all that good stuff. Because, shit, it's been two months since the last time we did an episode over that. Next episode oh. is actually going to probably come out way faster. Maybe within a week, if that, uh, of oh, this episode the- coming out. Because I don't know when the next episode will be coming out, just want to throw this in. If Pacific Rim is in theaters, go and see it. Yeah, go see that movie, because it was really go, good. I liked it. Was it was fantastic. It was amazing. Go see it, because by the time this comes out, it'll, if we get it out quickly, it will probably be in theaters for like a week more, maybe. It was vanishing pretty quick, even in the second yeah. movie. I saw uh, it yeah. twice in the theater. Yeah, so did I. And I would see it again. 
that's bombing pretty badly domestically in America. So. Yeah, not as bombing as Pearl Harbor and planes <laughs> drop from the sky and, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, not being received very well either. So um, with that in mind, um, I'm Daryl Surratt. I'm Gerald Rathgold. And I'm Clarissa. And this is the Anime World Order podcast. And we'll catch your ass down the road. No, that's someone else's sign off line. We'll see us again if you're lucky. That should work. Maybe. <laughs> Actually, that is not the last thing we got to say. I actually have a late-breaking announcement. We got to get this in here right now. Yesterday, I guess because it's 1 a.m., I can't say today, uh, crowdfunding Indiegogo got launched for Skin Crawling Comics. It's a horror-based comic book anthology featuring contributions from our own Gerald as well as other podcasters like Jeremy Kaufman, who has my ass blocked on Twitter, and Paul Unicorns Chapman. It's being headed up by the wife of an internet terrorist, Rachel Pandich, who previously did work on the crowdfunded womanthology. The reason I bring this up is because, hey, Gerald's working on it, and to give incentive for you guys to kick money towards this thing and donate to it, we said, oh, okay, well, if anybody pledges it, say, a hundred bucks, you can force the Anime World Order to review any anime of your choosing that is fewer than 26 episodes that we have not already reviewed. So yeah, we said that, and then somebody pledged that immediately. So we are already on the hook for one such request. Now the question now comes up, because it happened immediately. We're going to have to open this up to more requests, more slots. Now I don't know, I'm not involved with this project. I'm just putting this out there, and putting this link up there, even though it may very well cause me great pain and anguish and suffering and discomfort. But you motherfuckers wouldn't dare hit me twice, or even three times. At least I'm convinced. I mean, Gerald's the one who's kind of, you know, in charge of this whole project. And I think right now he's fearing for his life and his sanity. So maybe by the time you hear this, there's going to be more slots on this thing opened up. And maybe he's going to up that bounty. Maybe it's not going to be $100 anymore. Maybe it's going to be $110. Maybe it's going to be $120. Who knows? Whatever. I want you to go to that website. We're going to have a link in our show notes, but if you go to Indiegogo.com and search for Skin Crawling Comics Anthology, it'll definitely come up. That's enough for me. This is legitimately the end of the podcast because I've got video games to play and panels to not really finalize yet, even though Otakon's in two weeks and I should probably start them, huh? I got this. I got it under control after I play some more Shadowrun. <laughs>